And I'm joined by uh, Kristen Holmes, who is a good friend. Uh, in fact, she was involved with uh, the 777 Expedition in supporting uh, performance alongside uh, Dr. Uh, Kirk Parsley, who uh, who we could go on and have conversations about <laughs> for, uh, for three hours, but we won't do that. No, Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Good. <laughs> really uh, good to see you, Mike. You too, man. You too. Uh, in, in the intro, you know, impressive resume, not only a, uh, a great athlete, but you won 12 titles in the 13 seasons that you coached and it was Princeton field hockey, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. First off, what, I mean, you, you must've inherited a team. Did the first year that you took over, did you guys win the title? Uh, we did. We did. Yeah. What, 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 what is it about coaching leadership that, that mm. you attribute to your, your success? Yeah. I mean, I think we had a, a pretty robust uh, infrastructure that was a, a performance education infrastructure that was a, a, a core differentiator. It wasn't just, um, you know, it served as a recruiting platform, you know? So I, I think in the recruiting process, I think it, you can, I think over glamorize what the experience is about. And, and that was, I took kind of the opposite strategy. I was like, look, this is going to be really hard. It's going to be the hardest four years of your life. Like there's nothing harder than, you know, being, well, there's a lot of things that are harder, but, and, and maybe this sounds kind of um, funny, but it, it's, it's hard to achieve academically at a place like Princeton University while simultaneously achieving athletically. It's very, very hard to balance the demands of being a student athlete at a place like Princeton. Because it's not, it's not resourced like it is like a Stanford or a Michigan or, and those are the teams that we were competing against. So we had to have something to attract. I, I wanted to win a national championship. I wanted to win. I didn't just want to win one Ivy league title and my, you know, I wanted to win every year. So, you know, what, what do we need to do in order to attract high performance athletes? And that's really, I think the infrastructure that I built there and the, and the core differentiator was, it was an infrastructure that you're not only going to uh, get everything that you need to get to, you know, play in Olympic games, for example, you're going to get the technical and tactical coaching, but you know what, you're also going to get this other education, you're going to learn about your body, you're going to understand the factors, both psychological and physiological that move around your capacity to not only achieve everything that you want to achieve on the athletic field, but also in the classroom, and then in your life, you know, after your four years, and we really sold that uh, platform. Okay, so let, let, let me step back. So you were a member of the U.S. National Field Hockey Team. So mm -hmm. naturally, you have the respect of, of, of your players. You lived it. You know, uh, you've got credibility when, when you're talking. Um, were you already in the field of human performance yeah. prior to becoming a coach? You'd already yeah. started your master's? And yeah, so, yeah, so I was working when I was at University of Iowa, which is where I did my undergrad, um, I coached right out of college and was was uh, was coaching in parallel to playing on the U.S. national team. Um, so it was really it, it was there's a, there a lot going on, but it but it was amazing. And that's when I started my master's um, and I linked up with two Ph.D. students who were really interested in marrying the psychology and the physiology. Um, but they weren't athletes. So they kind of needed me to, to kind of help stitch it together. And we started building a performance education platform that was really kind of taking all everything that we knew from physiology, everything that we knew from psychology and really putting this together so we could understand and almost like take the, uh, you know, mystery 
out of performance, right? We, we had this kind of mantra, performance is a choice. If you understand the factors that move around your performance, like your attentional capacity, your energy production, your motivation, if you understand the factors that move around, you can show up every day and perform. And that's really kind of the core message that I took to Princeton. I was like, performance is a choice. I'm going to tell you exactly what upgrades, and I'm going to tell you exactly what downgrades. And every single day, you have a choice, and you can pick which behaviors you, you know, because you know that behavior is going to upgrade, this behavior is going to downgrade. And it's not rocket science, but it's like putting that out there really explicitly. And then obviously having some things to quantify, um, you know, physiological markers to help quantify and so kind of subjective markers to help quantify. But you put all this together and all of a sudden it's, it's becomes very obvious, like what's helpful and what isn't. And then you just make choices. Now, we're either it was a program like this that you set up in Princeton in place in Iowa or at the uh, the national team? Uh, no. So I kind of um, so we started kind of to stitch it together at Iowa. And then, um, and then I left, I actually started my own business and was recruited to, to coach at Princeton. So there's kind of a, a two-year gap where I really continued to develop this model um, and was testing it. Um, I, I kind of started a, a national camp coaching clinic business. So I was in 17 different locations across the US. I ran this business for like 17 years and it was it was amazing. So I got to kind of test these principles um, around coaching and kind of develop a framework and a curriculum. And then, yeah, I, I kind of brought that to, to Princeton and just, you know, idea, you know, iterated on it over the course of my 13 seasons and, um, you know, pulling in uh, all sorts of you know, intel from the incredible, you know, Princeton ecosystem, like folks like Daniel Kahneman. And, you know, I, yeah. I probably have three degrees, you know, just from like auditing courses, but, you know, from neuroscience and psychology. So I kind of continued to kind of build, um, you know, uh, I guess a, just a model that um, was you know, pretty rock solid and I think stands up to all the science that's evolved over the, you know, to, to today. You know, it's it, as you say, the physiological and the psychological components mm -hmm. and marrying those two together. There's such beauty in those two things, man. If you can master mm -hmm. those two things, you, yeah, human performance. You have the keys to the kingdom. Charts. Yeah. I, I do want to get to this, though. You know, one, you, you work with a lot of high-performing teams mm -hmm. within athletics, but then you've worked with a lot of special operations mm -hmm. and extreme athletes. Mm -hmm. How often have you worked with, like, the private sector? People just at Johnson & Johnson – Mm. working the, 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 the eight to, to seven. I mean, yeah. have you studied human performance in that realm and how you, again, pair the, the psychological and the physiological sides to get more performance out of your, your everyday warriors? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we did a, a really beautiful study with McKinsey, actually, um, in, in collaboration with McKinsey, where we looked at uh, CEOs and we studied all sorts of different types of variables. Uh, we actually took uh, measures uh, from their direct reports as well to kind of uh, kind of stitched together a story, but it's, it was called the Executive Leadership Program, and we're actually in the analysis phase. Um, but one of the things that we tested was psychological safety. And so, as you you know know, know full well, psychological safety is this, um, was coined by Dr. Amy Edmondson, um, who is actually uh, one of our investigators in, in on this study. But what we looked at is, you know, we wanted to understand, and this is the first study of its kind, actually looking at the physiology, physi physiology and the psychology kind of simultaneously in leaders, leaders and how um, that affects leadership. And uh, what bubbled to the surface, and this is wild, um, is this, this metric called sleep debt. So how much sleep debt, which is basically what WHOOP says you need. So WHOOP is a physiological 24-7 physiological monitoring device. We measure sleep. It's basically what WHOOP says you need versus what you got. The delta between what you, what you need and what you got is called sleep debt. 
So basically, we found a very strong statistical relationship between the sleep debt of a leader and the psychological safety of their teams. So how safe you feel, <laughs> how, how safe you feel like you can come to the, the table and express your ideas and be your most authentic self is contingent on how much sleep debt your leader is carrying. And I'm going to assume that the sleep debt, the higher the sleep debt, the more the of course, uh, yes. psychological, emotional instability. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So this is that just is, one example. Yeah. Of just this marrying of, of kind of the psychology and the physiology. Man, you look at like investment banking and, and, and the hours that, that they work. That's, I know. that's insane. I know. I know. And it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you don't, you can't actually perceive your own physical, mental, and emotional declines. And, and I think that's what's really sneaky. And I think that's the opportunity, really, that you can, you can make choices every day that um, are not serving you. And you might not feel it acutely in the moment, but people around you, I mean, this is an example with sleep debt, right? Like, it's not just impacting you, it's impacting every single person around you. And, and not to mention, what about your family when you come home after your workday? You know, your employees don't feel psychologically safe. I mean, we know from the data that when you come home, you're a less, you're not a great version of yourself always, right? Like you're in terms of your compassion and your tolerance level and your irritability. I mean, the family gets the worst of you sometimes. So yeah, sleep debt is, um, is real and it doesn't just affect you. Um, so that, that was a clear outcome. And I think anyone who is a human can take, you know, can, can take, I think, that insight and apply it to their life directly. You know, we just had uh, Kelly start uh, on, oh. you know, the sub, okay. So the you know, leopard. Oh my gosh, yeah. leopard. Um, and, and I I've been it. working on my mobility. I'm, it's not a straight, I'm just a meathead, you know, like I just, you know, I've always pushed around heavy weight and I mean, I'm fast and agile, I suppose, but yeah, mobility has never been like a huge strength, so, but I've been like rocks, like laser focused on it. So, it, yeah, <laughs> he, he, you know, he actually brought up the fact that, you know, like this generation is more mobile uh, than we were. However, you know, he threw out some statistics where this generation also has like more ACL and MCL tears than our generation, uh, which I found uh, interesting. But, you know, he did talk about how the, you know, the, the, the continued emphasis on human performance is what just continues mm -hmm. to drive these current athletes to be so much better than uh, than we were. As you look back at Iowa and uh, the national team, <laughs> mm -hmm. were there things that you just laugh about that like the coaching staff or the system was just doing completely wrong uh, I mean, to, to maximize performance? I, and I'm not trying to call people out. It's just, it's, no, no, no. It was, they didn't know. They didn't time. know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, I mean, there was not a day that my legs weren't just like blocks of cement. I mean, we overtrained. Like you would not believe. I mean, the stuff that we would do. I mean, we'd run, you know, 2400s, you know, and you had to run each one at one, you know, a minute 30, and you'd have a minute 30 rest in between. Like we'd run 20, and then we'd do 12 200s. Like, the, like we just did an insane amount of volume. And then, oh, by the way, the next morning we'd play Korea. You know, it just like was just insane. Like the, the you just did not have time to recover. So there's no question the recovery component, component and just the ability to kind of measure uh, volume and intensity, you know, at individual levels and, and be able to kind of uh, treat and, and coach athletes at, at an individual level, because we all can, you know, are going to respond to stimulus in a different way, right? And, and almost need to be kind of, you can't apply like one 
like training program to like the team necessarily right like we kind of all have different things genetically that you know i might need to like work on my speed for example someone else might need to work more on their endurance base and some people are naturally strong versus other people who you know really need to work in that area so yeah so i think when i look back i'm like oh my god it was just like a blanket program we were just yeah, trained like small men all. yeah 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 so so is, is there an increase in individual individualization for within, sure yeah yeah i mean i think that that is that is the opportunity, right? To kind of understand how each person is responding and adapting to stimuli. Not, it's, it's not just about training load, right? And that was the other big aha moment when I got to Princeton and I started, you know, I, I had GPS, so I had Minimaxes. I had, you know, I had first beat, you know, I had super robust like heart rate technology. I mean, I was, I built like super sophisticated models. I was substituting athletes off of epoch you know which no one is even doing today to be honest but so we had we were so sophisticated and kind of all the physiological data that we we're pulling in and our models were so robust uh, but but the thing that kept frustrating me and what led me to whoop honestly was that it was not like no model that i could create would actually could actually predict next day capacity right so it didn't matter how hard i trained them it was the other 22 hours 21 hours of the day that was more influential and that was the time that I didn't have control over, right? So when you talk about individualizing high-performance environments, if you don't have a handle on the other 20 hours that they're not with you, good luck. Good luck, like actually like being able to repeat success because that is what is gonna drive their, when you get up to the top, right? When you get up to these really high-performance elite environments, so you're talking like the San Francisco Giants and like, you know, that, mm -hmm. that kind of, like all the athletes are great, right? Like they're, they've got like this baseline genetic capacity, they've got great skills and, and expertise. It's all being nurtured by high-end, you know, information coming from like coaches and support staff. The difference is just the choices that these dudes are gonna make around nutrition, around, you know, hydration, whether or not they drink alcohol, whether or not they stabilize sleep-wake time, the amount of time they spend in bed. Like that is what is gonna determine whether or not you win championships and whether you can when not just one year, but repeated years. It's what the guys are doing in the other 20 hours. It's you know, the other 20 hours, though, especially for these college students coming in where, where there's programs that are just very, very disciplined mm. and, and regimented. I, man, I, I, I could see how that sort of robs from the, uh, the college experience. Cause you're it so depends what you. It just depends on what you want your college experience to be. Yeah. You know, like oh, if no, you totally. want to, you know, if, and that's where I think, you know, I have a hard take on this, but like, I mean, I think the the you know how drinking is normalized across college campuses is just you know mind numbing to me. Like I, I just don't even understand it. Like how we've made it okay for for kids to just go into college environments and just binge drink their faces off. I mean, what are we trying to do here? Like I just I I have a hard time like understanding that. But you you know my college experience was different because one I was hell I think it was like twenty three. When I started, because the Marine Corps sent me back, so right. I just I, I was twenty three is not old, but I also was a Marine, and I yeah. you know I, I would be sent back to the the fleet if I screwed up. But um, right. you know, I, if you could go back to your younger self, I would even. But you've you've partied with SEALs, you've partied with Special uh, Forces guys. There's a lot of drinking. Yeah. Even if I could go back to my thirty year old self and just be like, bro, just just cut out the drinking, you will feel so much better better uh. when you're forty. 45, oh. 50, like, and, uh, I regret that. I regret that. But I remember I did do two years, no drinking, uh, in the SEAL teams. And it was, and that was the best shape I've ever been in. 
Yeah. That shit. It's poison. It, it is poison any way you cut it. I know. There's there's no moderate level. Like it, there's there's no amount of alcohol alcohol that's kind of safe for you. Unfortunately, like I and I know that's tough for people to hear, but you know this is just a scientific fact at this point. Like we're not, you know, it's not really up for debate anymore. Um, yeah. Well, it, has Whoop done? Well, I'm sure somebody has. Oh. Has Whoop done studies where they had like a test group where like, hey, you're just gonna go to sleep, and then another that like drinks before or has a oh, certain yeah. amount of alcohol. Oh yeah, we have so much. Yeah, I mean the 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 amount of data we have on alcohol. I mean, it's just it it crushes your recovery. So your heart rate variability will take anywhere from a ten to twenty millisecond like decline, decrease, right? Higher heart variability, better. So that's like clinically off the charts in terms of significance. And then your resting heart rate will go, you know, anywhere from like you know five to twenty, depending on how much you drink. Um, you know, increase in beats per minute. So what's happening kind of physiologically, obviously there's just enormous perturbations. Like your system is trying to process and digest all of this alcohol. As a result, you're just not, you don't get into deeper stages of sleep. Um, and so you're just basically, you can throw out anytime you're drinking, probably more than two drinks within two hours of bedtime, you can basically throw out that sleep. So all the genes that should be turning on, <laughs> They don't turn on all the restorative things that need to be happening in terms of just the, the housekeeping, like cleanup that needs that should be happening in the brain is not happening. Right. So um, and, you know, and every missed sleep is basically you're just knocking, you know, kind of hours and days and, you know, weeks off your life. <laughs> so is sleep the number one predictor of performance? Uh, so is it, I know that's sort of a very generalized. Uh, no. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel very confident in, in saying that it's actually the, you know, you have to spend sufficient time in bed. There's no question. So when you think about the three kind of core pillars of sleep, it's sufficiency. So spending enough time in bed, um, it is quality. Um, but what drives quality um, and, and sleep quality has a, almost a linear relationship with heart rate variability, where sleep duration doesn't as much. So time, how much time you're spending in bed. But there is a course of a there's going to be. Uh, a, a point in which you're not spending enough time in bed and, you know, but, um, but, but by and large, if you look at the literature, literature, you know, heart variability correlates, which is a marker of kind of overall health and well-being and just your ability to kind of adapt in a functional way to stress is correlated to, um, to the quality of sleep. And the thing that drives the behavior that drives quality sleep is, is your sleep-wake time. So how stable when you go to bed and when you wake up will drive your sleep quality, okay? So we see this, we, we just finished a huge study with the US Army um, looking at paratroopers in Alaska. And of course there's, uh, you know, just awesome like seasonal kind of natural variation and, you know, just light dark, right? And we know that light, um, you know, apart from our sleep wakes, our sleepiness, you know, when we think about circadian rhythms, right? Are really what's happening here and what we're seeing and kind of going back to your initial question is, is sleep the most important thing in recover in, in performance? Um, it's really synchronized circadian rhythms that drive performance levels. Okay. And the path to synchronizing your circadian rhythms is stabilizing your sleep wake time. When you stabilize your sleep wake time, you inherently are probably viewing light relatively, you know, for the most part inside kind of that natural light dark cycle. So what's actually happening naturally in terms of the sun going down and the sun coming up, right? The other benefit of a, a stable sleep-wake time is you probably are ending your meals 
generally a couple to few hours before you intend to sleep, generally. Okay, so this one behavior of kind of stabilizing sleep-wake time, I think has a cascade effect across these other behaviors that drive our circadian rhythms. So I think to, to answer this question, if people really want to get a, a handle on their performance and they want to kind of crush life, they need to synchronize their circadian rhythms. Which for parents... Which means, well, yeah, and it's the, there's other levers. So if you can't yeah. go to bed and wake up because you have young children, um, then you want to just make sure that your feeding window is when the sun is up to mm -hmm. the degree that you can. Um, if you're a shift worker, you want to try to eat all of your calories during the natural, you know, whenever it's, you know, going to be the, the kind of biological day. Um, and when you're working at night, you want to try to, you know, not eat very much um, just to kind of keep that regularity and try to, again, try to, you know, do as much as you can that, you know, in a way that, you know, basically endogenously, like our, our clocks are kind of expecting certain things to happen. And when we uh, ha create a lot of variation between what actually is happening and what we want to do endogenously, that creates this misalignment or that desynchronization. Mm. And that is what leads to metabolic dysfunction. That what, what leads to suppressed melatonin. That is what leads to mental health issues, um, you know, reduced physical capacity. So, um, infertility. So all of these problems that emerge, you can kind of link back to these circadian, uh, circadian rhythms and, and how aligned or misaligned they are. None of this was ever discussed early in my career in special operations. I know Not people miss the circadian rhythm conversation. We talk about, oh, spend more time in bed. Well, that's good advice, mm. but it's very incomplete because if you're not viewing light when you wake up, that's a real problem. And if you're not getting daylight during the day, that's a problem, right? Like that is what really um, strengthens the, um, our circadian rhythms, right? If we're eating over the course, and, and let me tell you, like 74% of Americans are eating over the course of 15 to 16 hours a day, which is so much stress on our body. Digestion is so effortful, right? So when we're eating in these massive, you know, we're kind of creating these really huge eating windows, that is invariably going to disrupt our sleep. That's going to invariably disrupt when we can actually fall asleep, right? So we want to try to consolidate our feeding windows. We want to see lots of light in the morning, lots of light during the day uh, when it's, you know, nat natural sunlight, ideally, or, you know, daylight. We want to consolidate our feeding windows to, you know, eat when the sun is up. Um, and then we want to try to stabilize when we go to bed and when we wake up. And then we want to make sure we're restricting light um, in the lead up to bed. And definitely between 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. As you're talking through this, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much visualizing how many rules I break. I know, um, I know. I, but most people are. And that's why we have a crisis of, of metabolic disease. That's why we have a crisis of cardiovascular disease. That's why you know, the world population has never been unhealthier, right? It's because we're just asking our body to do stuff that it's just not built to do. We have not evolved and or adapted to blue light after the sun goes down. Like we just haven't, right? So as a result, you know, we see real effects on our dopamine system and our the mood and the circuitry in our brain. Our, you know, our mood is compromised when we're viewing light between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m., right? We see this, we know this. It has a pro-depressive effect, right? So you're depressed, well, you can kind of link back to all these things that I'm talking about. Let, let me ask you this, because you said you just finished a uh, study with the U.S. Army and the paratroopers. Um, so, you know, one of the f 
funny phrases in the military was sleep deprivation training. Hey, we're going to, hey, this is going to be really rough. Sleep deprivation training, food deprivation training. Can someone train to sleep deprivation? Does the body adjust or no matter what you're doing, it's just, it's impact performance. No. You just, you adapt to a lower level of performance is what happens. It's like, okay, let me ask you this. Can you, does getting heat stroke make you more equipped to handle heat? No, it, it actually, I think, increases the chance, chances of uh, recurrent heat stroke. Exactly. So yeah. the same principle applies to sleep deprivation, right? Like you don't, you, you, to get back to baseline after a bout of sleep deprivation, it's going to take you probably two weeks. Right. So you want to minimize that as much as possible. You want operators to be as robust and resilient as often as humanly possible. That means you want to balance the load, the volume and the intensity relative to capacity and make sure that there's a really beautiful cadence there. So you're overtraining in a functional way as often as possible. Um, you want to make these guys as strong and as resilient as possible. And it, the path to that is not sleep depriving them, <laughs> depriving them of sleep. Um, you want to make, uh, you want to increase lethality. You get them to go to bed and wake up at the same time as much as humanly possible. Like that will increase the strength of our force. Like unbelievably, but this shit isn't being taught just to be very clear. Like we're, we're doing the opposite of all this, frankly. And it drives me crazy. Yeah. The system's Systems take a while, a while to evolve I know. and adapt. And, and, I know. and Kelly, Kelly was talking about that. Um, yeah. Where, you know, I know the fitness community is up in arms about Ozempic. And, you know, Kelly's like, hey, we had 15 years to convince the populace to to follow these practices, to, to reduce weight. And they didn't do it. So, of course, we're going to Ozempic. Yeah. Um, have you ever looked at data regarding sleep based off geography? Like, hey, mm -hmm. in Italy, they, they get better quality sleep. Uh, due to societal differences than, let's say, North America and the United States? We have those data. Um, I'd have to look. I can't remember off the top of my head who the best sleepers are, but we have World Sleep Day coming up, and we will analyze the data and look at that. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. I'd be yeah. I'd be interested just based off lifestyle. Yeah. Because, again, yeah. you, go to, you go to Greece, and life is just slower. <laughs> and totally they, they actually, yeah. well, I mean, they, they go later into the night, but they, mm -hmm. they, uh, they wake up, uh, later traditionally mm -hmm. compared to, to, to Americans. And yeah. I, I'm assuming within the, the, the sports arena from collegiate to professional, mm -hmm. they're putting a greater emphasis on sleep and, yeah. and getting the, the coaches and recovery and getting the coaches to back yeah. off. I think everyone recognizes that it's the greatest legal performance enhancing drug sleep that is. So, yeah, I think everyone is really on board. But I think, again, like, you know, I go into environments and uh, again, it's like telling kids to spend more time in bed without thinking about these kind of circadian behaviors that are going to drive like and, and yeah, it's. For the most part, it's good. Um, we have made some traction, you know, with, I know the Yankees a few years ago, I was inside their environment and they were having guys come at 6 a.m. trying to build resilience. I was like, listen, like these kids are like, they're 22, 23 years old. Like they're biologically, they're not primed to be ready to go at 6 a.m. Like they're still, you know, their, their bodies are still cold. Like, you know, you're not going to get the most of them. 
Um, so they kind of shifted things and it actually had a huge impact on um, performance levels and obviously just the kind of the overall health and, and wellness of their group. And it didn't mean that they could, you know, that it, it wasn't. And I could talk a little bit about um, like this notion of, of um, uh, you know, that we have like evening larks and or uh, evening that night owls and the, and the larks and um, would love to talk for a second about that um, because I think what we think as a society in terms of when bedtimes are for younger populations like these 23 year old Yankees players versus um, versus someone else is it's not actually uh, it's not what people think it is but um, but yeah so once we kind of uh, put some I think reasonable parameters and used kind of the science um, you know not surprisingly the, the the kids get a lot happier and played a lot better. I, you, you do the same thing I do. I, you calling them kids. Yeah. Um, well, at this young, point, young, young, I, men, just, young, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> young men and women. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, you know, whoop, did you find whoop or did whoop find you? Yeah. So I was building some technology at Princeton. So I kind of had this idea. Oh, I, you know, one of the problems that I was trying to solve in my environment was the fact that I couldn't, I couldn't basically, I didn't know, the capacity levels of my athletes. So I was always frustrated that I, I couldn't design, you know, the right practice program. You know, like I, I the, you know, I couldn't design the right, um, you know, the 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 right practice. My designs were always like a bit off because I didn't know the recovery of my athletes. Like you know, some, you know, one athlete stayed up really late. You know, was doing X Y Z for a couple nights in a row. Um, she was dragging ass, and you know, I when I ended up getting injured. You know, like you know, I just didn't have like enough information to be able to like properly designed practices. So um, I started and I had all this technology, um, but yet still couldn't solve that question. So I started building uh, some technology. I was basically just had like the top Fitbit um, product was using that. And I, I actually raised like a quarter of a million dollars and, um, and hired some, you know, system machine learning, some computational biologists. And we basically started, we took the Fitbit API and we're like pulling all this data in and started building uh, algorithms to be able to really quantify readiness based on this 24-7 picture. And we got really, we got through beta, got really far down the track. Um, of course, I hadn't started building hardware yet. I was just really just wanted to get the algorithms right off this heart rate data. Uh, we had some really interesting features around mental health. Of course, a lot of my background is in psychology, so I was like mm -hmm. pulling that in, which is really cool subjective data. Um, and it was actually part of like most loved feature. Um, but we had sleep and we had readiness. Um, this was before Aura. <laughs> um, I had a readiness score. Um, and and it was actually like really starting to be give our us some really valuable intel and, and helped us um, kind of really get uh, uh, be able to, I think, I think, prepare our athletes better. Um, we were reducing injuries like it was, it was pretty sweet. And so anyway, throughout the process, I was um, basically giving a presentation to our varsity club. And one of the guys on the call um, was an investor in Whoop. And he was like, oh, have you heard of Whoop? This sounds just like Whoop. I'm like, what are you talking about? I like, you know, dropped in a puddle of tears. I'm like, someone else is building this? What? I thought I had like, you know, um, he's like, yeah, and they have like hardware too. I'm like, oh no. So anyway, within 48 hours, I was in New York sitting down with Will Ahmed, who was our CEO. Yes. Um, and we were just kind of exchanging war stories. And um, yeah, and he invited me up to Boston and yeah, and offered me a job. And I was like seven years ago. That's insane. Yeah. With, I mean, so it's, 
it's almost like we're 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 now at a position where you can collect near 24 hours of data of course yeah you got to recharge surely well um, whoop you don't have to take it off your wrist to charge you just put the battery on top right. so right. we do that not miss ingenious. a second of data yeah yeah it, it, that that is right I, I completely forgot that um yeah is there is there such a thing as too much data and let me let me sort of yeah qualify that even further do you guys have the ability to then take all the data that you're getting and put it into algorithms that can allow people to make better educated decisions with regards to performance, sleep and recovery? I mean, that's the goal, right? And and yeah. I think what's important is like we train all of our, we don't buy data. We collect every single piece. Like we do our very own data collections and train our data off of our own, own data collection. So we're not just buying population data and applying that to our models, um, which every other wearable is doing. As a result, we are the most accurate by far. It's not even close on the market um, in terms of uh, our heart rate, heart rate variability, you know, all of the data that basically drives our, um, our, our algorithms and our features. Will, 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 will Whoop continue to look in terms of form factor the way it does? Or will, in your yeah. opinion, do you think it will evolve to a different form? Yeah, I mean, I think we're really committed to the idea that we don't really want to be a watch. You yeah. know, I, th I think yeah. I think there's a lot we can do with haptic. You know, just like you know, when you're getting, hey, I want to train zone two today. Imagine like, you know, um, that'd be super helpful, right? To kind of keep you in this heart rate threshold without having to look at a phone, without having to, you know, but just. Um, so I think there's a lot we can do without a watch face. Um, but I do, I love the idea of not getting pinged and notified and i make a choice when i go in to look at those data um so i don't know who knows but i think as of right now um we're really committed to just passively collecting this data and allowing our member to go in and, and look at the data when they see fit at what what point do you guys get further into the education game of human performance in terms of providing providing additional or more educational content than you guys produce now yeah, I mean, I think I think we're really trying to figure out how to elegantly bake yeah. that into the experience, right? So it's almost like, I mean, I I do appear in videos in the app, um, yeah. you know, kind of. Um, but I, but I think like what where we really need to to get to is is I think at this point, and you kind of alluded to it, there's there's a lot of science, right? Like there's we have. I think we have a pretty clear understanding of how do we actually need to apply our effort if human optimization is a goal, right? If we're really mm -hmm. interested in kind of managing and controlling the trajectory of our, self, our, our health, how do we need to apply our effort across these three pillars? Like we can be way more explicit about that. Um, so I think for me, like that's really what I'm trying to push at, at yes. Whoop is, is that we need to bake in this point of view and, and create mechanisms within the experience that enable us to do those things, you know, whether it's a zone five training and we can track all this, but we don't necessarily have like a point of view. And I think that to me is like this next step is like, let's really like double down on sleep consistency. We see it bubbles up in every single study as being predictive of physiological and psychological resilience. Like let's like surface that and make it, make it really uh, a, an, a super elegant experience so people are very clear of like hey this is the minutes of toler you know a variability that's tolerable for you physiologically 
Like this is what you can get away with. This is what you can't. And then people can make very clear choices, mm -hmm. right? And then I think the next step is, okay, then let's, let's show you a model of yourself 15 years from now if you continue down this path. I love that idea too. <laughs> it, it, well, it's almost like your investment mechanism of the, the yeah. compounding interest of, hey, if you make these, these changes, not only will your skin look younger, you'll, you'll, yeah. you'll age won't age. Yeah. I mean, I it, like that. Yeah. It's kind of this digital twin kind of concept that, yeah. You know, so you've been looking at this data for 20 plus years now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you started, you started when you were 15. Yeah, that's right. Um, totally. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when I, I'm sure you get it from people where they're like, hey, what are those three, five, seven things mm. that you recommend I focus on? Yeah. Uh, it, for the listeners, like, hey, you already said it, like, make sure you're, you're getting that circadian rhythm eating during those, uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 the period of, uh, of light. What, what are those things that, that you try to like just hone in on very quickly when people ask? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely, you know, I'll say sleep, wake time again. Like I just, I can't okay. emphasize that enough. Yeah. Um, and then I think consolidating eating windows, you know, even if you're eating like crap, if you're only eating like crap over the course of eight hours during the daylight hours, um, that will get you like 60% of the, of the way to your weight loss goals. <laughs> and, 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 and it will also improve your metabolic function, uh, you know, functioning like you're, so I think the time restricted eating does not get enough attention. And I think that is such it, these things around time, right? They're democratically available for the most part. And it, it, it comes to, I love stuff. Like I love behaviors that are about choice. You know, like I might not be able to control the quality and content of what I'm eating, but I can, for the most part, control the time of like what, when I put shit in my mouth. Right. And that like from a, a health intervention at scale, like will go so far. So, and then I think, um, and then alcohol, you know, like I, I just see, it just is crushing. It's crushing to sleep, to our heart variability, to your resting heart rate. You know, we've got this new feature called stress monitor. I mean, holy shit, I had a Prosecco and it took my body four hours to get back. I had one Prosecco. It took my hours, my, my body four hours to get back to baseline. It's on a scale of zero to three. And I was like, I mean, I was, it was like, I was in a high stress environment, like high stress, like moment. It was like, I was like at a, uh, like a 2.9, like 2.8, like the whole time. And usually like my baseline, I'm like 0.4, like, you yeah. know, like totally chill, you know? So it, it's just crazy what it does to your system. Um, so yeah. And it sounds silly, but hydration, you know, water, <laughs> it's really important. We see that correlate really strongly with all the metrics that we track, like people who are underhydrated and overfueled, you know, uh, are, are two of the really crushing, um, crushing behaviors. Um, and then, you know, obviously how you train is pretty important. Um, I know for, you know, folks who are just trying to get these other things right, that kind of slides down the priority list, but, um, but I mean, exercise, there's no question, can offset a lot of these other mm -hmm. behaviors that might not be perfect. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think polarized training for someone who is not in a performance space, but is looking purely for longevity is certainly the way to go. Um, you wanna maximize the interplay between kind of the cardiovascular nervous system. And you do that by, you know, these lower intensity training where I really see that as recovery. 
Um, you know, it's not even exercise zone two, right? Um, that's where you can talk comfortably um, mm -hmm. and you can do it lots of different types of, you can use lots of different modalities, but that's just like table stakes. Like that's just, you know, 200 to 250 minutes a week of, of in that zone two. And then, and then zone five, you know, get out of breath a few times a week, um, move heavy shit around, you know, like go get in the backyard, throw some rocks around. Like, you know, like um, most people have access to some sort of heavy thing that they can move around. Um, but yeah, so th those would be kind of, I think the, the high that's stuff. The, the five. No, no, no. That's your Prosecco comment. Now I'm like thinking back to when all the guys were sitting in Doha after Abu Dhabi and we're waiting to fly to uh, Australia and we're, we're drinking like mimosas and we're already sleep deprived. Just, I know. It, it's like throwing, you know, it's like pushing that the Titanic even further uh, below the, uh, the surface of the, uh, the ocean or the, the, the bottom. That's right. Um, let me ask you this in, in, you know, again, Kelly start, but we all know this, like the, the 10,000 steps mm. is like the, the, the hot thing subject mm. right now, but yeah. Uh, Primarily, we, we were nomadic. We were always moving. Mm. Have you seen a difference in performance mm -hmm. with regards to people that move more mm -hmm. or at least make it habitual to get up and go walk 2,000 steps? Here yeah. There? I mean, exertion levels correlates to psychological functioning. And we saw this in our U.S. Army soldier. So exertion, you know, calories is a good proxy for exertion, right? So the more calories you kind of burn generally, like the happier you are. And you can think about it, like, that's like the choice that I make to go out and have coffee with my friend or to, you know, just, I don't know, you know, go for a walk or just to work out, you know, like when we are feeling well, psychologically, we tend to move more. So there was a, a very strong relationship in that study between um, exertion levels, uh, calories burned, and and psychological well-being. And then we also did um, a study with seventy thousand Whoop users. We had six months of mental health data. So we're looking at general anxiety. Um, we were looking at uh, perceived stress and some other markers of psychological functioning. And you know, indeed, again, we saw two things: bubble sleep consistency um, and strain. So kind of our proxy for your cardiovascular load. So, so what's, I think, more valuable than steps, um, because you can be swimming or rowing and not get any steps, right? You don't get any credit, but you're working your heart, your heart, right? And that's why we measure strain. We don't measure strep, steps because we want to understand your lo the, the load that you're putting on your heart, right? How hard you're working your heart. And indeed, we see the harder you work your heart, actually, the, the, that seems to correlate really strongly with psychological functioning. That's, that is so encouraging to hear yeah, and, and, so. and to get people to fully understand that. Well, hell to integrate this type of, this type of instruction into mm. lower school education. Oh, I know I, you know, we've got, it's so cool. We've got our, you know, that the, between the ages of 13 and 18, like that, like when you look at like how, the type of users and just this, the, you know, the stratification of our user base, that's just like growing, you know, we don't even market to those to kids, you know, but more kids are, are using it. And, um, and I, I, I love that moment where we'll be able to really, you know, get in the hands of, of, of kids and kind of help them think about their body and, and really be empowered by understanding their body. And most importantly, that impact of behaviors on these metrics that are going to influence their mental, physical, and emotional well-being. You know, I think that there's nothing more important for a human being is to understand the consequence of their choices, right? And how it impacts the trajectory of their health.
it, you know, again, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, uh, a psychologist, but he basically said that mental health is a metabolic issue. Um, mm. He actually, so they did a lot of data with a keto diet that when Robert people, Lustig, he just recently wrote a book. I, this, this mm. is my brain, you know, from my community, we are <laughs> nothing but gray matter, but it, it was very interesting where he said the keto, uh, ketogenic, uh, mm. ketogenic diet. They found a massive reduction in anxiety and, and stress mm -hmm. and mental strain. Mm -hmm. And then when the people came off it, literally in a matter of a day or two, this, those symptoms, stress, anxiety mm -hmm. came mm -hmm. back. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it goes to the diet, but. Um, so there's, there's no question. I mean, what we're putting in our bodies has a massive impact on every aspect of, of our health. There's, there's no question. Yeah. We, this conversation could go for days and we'll have you back on because I've, I've got a lot of questions, even with diet and the data you've seen mm -hmm. with regards to specific uh, diets mm -hmm. is a podcast in itself. Mm -hmm. So you are hosting whoops podcast. Is that correct? So I'm what, so will Ahmed is officially the host, but yes, I, I do host a majority okay. of them. <laughs> where, where, where can, where can people find you? to, to okay. listen to all the content that you're putting out and uh, yeah. educate themselves. Yeah. So just whoop.com. So mm -hmm. the whoop podcast is, is great. You know, uh, we, you know, I, I typically interview scientists and, um, you know, experts, uh, uh, kind of expert researchers and, um, and then will, will kind of, uh, generally, uh, uh, interview athletes and, um, and, you know, CEOs. So that's kind of like how yeah. we divide and conquer, I yeah. suppose. And then every now and again, we'll have like, you know, uh, someone host who's not will or i but uh but yeah whoop.com and then um yeah i'll post stuff uh human performance stuff on on instagram as well just kristen holmes um 2126 something like that and then and then linkedin i i definitely try to like post some things i'm, I'm not really good on either one of those platforms honestly but um but yeah i, I try to throw some stuff of, that's relevant for folks and hopefully it's helpful well, we, we will drop all the links uh, to the platform as well. Uh, for the, the listeners, I, I would say this. Invest in a whoop. Uh, you will start to become addicted to checking your sleep in the morning when you wake up with all the yeah. data. And, and Kristen, remind me, it usually takes, is it almost instantaneous when you open the app? To, to look at your sleep or does it take uh, a little bit when you wake up to yeah i mean as long as your app is open in the background there's very little latency like you can yeah. pretty much just open it it's right there um yeah it might take a few minutes or whatever but uh yeah if you keep your app open which i, I you know i don't ever shut it down it yeah it's good what, what's interesting is and, and i'm not saying you're going to throw the whoop off but you'd be like oh man i slept well you look at the data and you're like i woke up tired the previous morning <laughs> the data shows that I had worse sleep. It's, it's, mm. it's interesting. And then you start to think like, well, what was the difference between that and that? And it's just, it's amazing. And whoop is a tool to aid with your human performance. So go check out whoop, invest in it. Um, I, even if you're, you've got other family members, uh, <laughs> even for the guys on triple seven, they were always opening the app and being like, yeah, I got good. My rest was this. My heart rate variability was this. It was, mm -hmm. uh, it almost become, it becomes like a, a inner group challenge. Yeah. And, and what was great with triple seven is I think a lot of the guys used it to, they had a baseline before that, you know, excruciatingly taxing mission. And then, you know, when they got home, they were trying to kind of get themselves back to baseline, you know? So, um, it, you know, Nick, Nick Kush and I like chatted a ton, like when he got home, he's like, I'm struggling. Um, 
but yeah, it's uh, it, it's great to just kind of see where you're at. And when you when you go through when you have moments in life where things aren't where you've got a really hard mission set or, you know, you've got, uh, you know, the playoffs like you want to I think it's important to understand like what that does to your body and how do you not just adapt to a new lower level of performance, but get yourself back to neutral. Right. Because um, you, if you keep doing that, then all of a sudden, like you're dead at 50. It's, it's just like, hey, how can I lower the bar? What's the bare minimum I can do? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> and, and thank you. Thank you for calling 777 an excruciating mission. Because every time I bring it up, and I'm like, it was so tough. My wife just like, she's like, it was a boy's trip. I'm like, no, it wasn't a boy's trip. I it know. Was a boy's trip. It was a little bit of a boy's trip, but you guys did have to, to really, uh, you had to really haul ass. Yeah. No question. And, and then to support that. <laughs> we, and at the end of the day, and I will say it, um, the quality of your support team is always one oh. of the largest indicators in whether you're going to be successful or not. From you uh, sending texts about guys in the performance <laughs> to Missy Tonus, mm-hmm. who was working American Airlines uh, for, yeah. for last minute contingencies, Star. to Kirk. It was, it was awesome. And for that, oh. I, I do owe you. Let's just get to the, uh, the documentary release in February. Yeah. Uh, we don't know yeah. where yet. Maybe Hollywood. We'll see. But I think it'll be a good reunion for, uh, for all of us. Chris and I can't thank you enough for uh, joining us. Again, we'll drop all those links and uh, we look forward to having you back on to, uh, yeah. to dig deeper. I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, fun. guys. Thanks. <laughs> Bye.